0: listening to the Oily Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry.
1: You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks for joining us for episode 315, and sorry in advance if my dog barks. <laughs> He's doing his job. He's I know. a good watchdog. I know.
0: Speaking of doing a good job, I heard a rumor. What's that? I heard that you have another show coming out on the network.
1: Yes. Jordan Yates and I will be launching a new show soon.
0: You want to tell the audience what it's about, or you want to wait?
1: I think we're going to wait until like we're almost there. Okay.
0: Anyway, as usual, it's going to be a blast. We've got a bunch of changes coming, so just stay tuned like you are used to. This new show will be high-quality content with a couple of professionals doing something. It's
1: going to be great. tons of fun.
0: It's not what you expect, so just you have to wait and see. Yep. But I'm excited. Actually, a lot of the companies actually jealous of y'all, too.
1: Yeah, especially Jordan Driscoll and Joe is
0: Yep. Which neither one of them has left us a review. We have not gotten a review in a week or two. So if you want to leave us a review, it's really easy to understand, or easy way to pull it off. Go to love the for it, OGTWR. Just go ahead and show it, click on the link. Yep. news stories. Our buddy Jeff sent us this one, which is actually really interesting. It has to do with...
1: Big Oil's Talent Crisis.
0: Yep, Big Oil's Talent Crisis, where high salaries are not enough. This is actually in the Wall Street Journal, and it's a whole discussion about how the oil industry is having trouble attacking talent, especially engineers, for several reasons. We've talked about this several times on the show. Our world's young people no longer see the oil and gas industry as a good place to work. They're worried about the industry's effect to the environment and things like climate change. They're concerned about the industry's role in climate change as well as long-term job security. And this is something that we haven't really had to deal with a whole bunch, although we have had times in the past where we had a shortage of talent. But listen to this statistic. This puts it all in perspective. The number of undergraduates pursuing a petroleum engineering degree in the U.S. has dropped 75% since 2014. Wow. And a petroleum engineer is a very specialized engineering program that the oil and gas industry, especially Upstream, absolutely has to hire. So, a couple things. So, first thing, if you're listening to this and you're in school and you're a petroleum engineer undergraduate, the future is very bright for you. No kidding. bright for you. But the other thing, people, is I want you to kind of think about the longer-term implications here. So, young people here and in Europe don't want to go work in the oil and gas industry. They definitely don't want to get a degree like petroleum engineering, which is very industry-specific. However, However, we can't run this industry without petroleum engineers, so we're going to have to hire them. What does that mean? It means we're going to hire them from other parts of the world other than the western part of the world. So we're going to start hiring a lot of petroleum engineers from China, from India, Bangladesh, Russia. Nothing's wrong with that. We've always had engineers from other parts of the world. This industry is one of the true that are fewly, true, that are global. Get it out. I know. (laughs) However, we're going to start changing the culture of our industry. The industry predominantly has always been a Western culture industry. And as our workers start getting to the point that they're retiring, and then we replace them with people that aren't from the Western world, the culture is naturally going to change. Once again, it's not a good thing. It's not a bad thing, but it is a change that's on the horizon. But I just It's when I see these headlines where we literally can't hire, and I know how much a beginning petroleum engineer makes, which is north of $100,000 a year right out of college, seems kind of like unreal, but it's legit, and it's a crisis that this industry is going to have to address at some point in the future, because we have to be able to hire engineers, project managers, accountants, and we're struggling right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sad to say. It is what it is, though. All right. Next article, the DOE is betting big on a geothermal game changer in Utah.
0: Love this. I really do love this. And this has nothing to do with a resident rock Joe Bittier, who's a big geothermal fan. With all the things I've learned, a lot of it through Joe, around geothermal, I'm now a huge geothermal proponent. I think geothermal is something that the world should be using for its base load. So the base load is the amount of electricity it just takes to run everything. And that's where wind and solar have trouble because the base load is consistent, where's wind and solar or not and people I am not hating on renewables I love renewables they have their place but traditionally things like nuclear and fossil fuels is what made up the baseload geothermal One of the things I love about it is how small a footprint it has. So once you're up and operating, geothermal has a very small footprint as far as the amount of square feet it takes to run the installation versus things like solar and wind. The other thing that's changing is technology. A lot of this technology that's come from the oil and gas industry is helping us tap into geothermal in a different way. Traditionally, you were basically looking at high-temp geothermal in parts of the world like Iceland where you had – steam powered by nature's by faults close to the surface so you don't have to do a lot of work think of the geyser in yellowstone right you could turn that into an electrical plant if you wanted to right there's yeah. only a few places in the world where that naturally happens what we're doing now is we're drilling deeper to tap into that deep high temperature which is around uh, totally around the world but then you have to have water flow so what they're doing which is really cool is they're basically drilling two wells at the right up space apart they frack, so the two wells connect. Right. Then they flow that water from one w- well number one to well number two. It comes up at a high enough temperature to be steamed to turn a turbine. That water is then condensed back to water, drop down well number one, and the cycle repeats. Oh, that's so really neat. the technology of fracking, we would yeah. not be able to do this geothermal almost anywhere where you – if you have the time and money to drill deep enough. It's still very early in its infancy. That's why I like the fact that the Department of Energy is putting money into this. This is one of those things that could be a game changer, and it's extremely – low impact to the environment. It's taking heat that is there regardless whether you use it or not. And like I said, the footprint is extremely small. So I'm looking forward to having more geothermal in our mix.
1: Good deal. Next article: Russia expands oil exports to China via
0: Arctic. Okay, so I'm not gonna get too deep in the article, but there's a couple things I do want to point out. Number one, this Arctic route has always been there. Russia's always used it. It's about 30% faster than Russia going around the Su- going through the Suez Canal. However. It's been dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because of things like icebergs. Right. And what's happening right now is Europe has basically disconnected itself as a buyer of Russian hydrocarbons. So Russia has to find another market, which is China. And by being able to shave 30% off the travel time, it's increasing their profits. All that makes total sense, right? What I'm really worried about is the environment. So Russia has a history of not reporting spills. don't think they don't have them. You just never heard of one because they don't report it. Number two, the tankers that they're pulling through the Arctic are not modern, state-of-the-art tankers made for the ice flows. These are old tankers, and they're using icebreakers to keep them safe. The other thing that happens, and a lot of people may not know this – in that cold environment, when you have an oil spill, you don't immediately see it. It's stuck to the ice.
1: Mm. It's not until the
0: ice melts, which may be a decade or more later,
1: that you actually
0: see the oil. So, even our satellites probably have a hard time seeing if there's an oil spill up there. So, I'm really, really, really worried about the environment. The Arctic environment is uh, is extremely fragile. You can imagine how short the growing season is. Yeah. Unlike here in the Gulf Coast of the U.S. where all you got to do is put a little water and plant a seed and something will grow the same plant that may you know flower and grow and then die in a few months here in the Gulf Coast might take 20 or 30 years to do the same cycle in the Arctic. So this really has me bothered. The solution, there is none. Yeah. So we just have to keep an eye on this. The good thing is both Americans and Europeans have done a lot of experimentation in the Arctic, and they have the resources and the engineering proudness to help if there's a spill. So please, 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 Russia, if y'all have a spill, let us know.
1: Yeah, I'm yeah. sure they're going to be
0: right on top of that. No, they won't. But no. if they could, if they would they just let us know? It would make a big difference in us being able to help with
1: Mark the Mark LaCour demands. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Shell and BP's Green Commitments question in Greenpeace report.
0: Yeah, so basically Greenpeace commissioned a report, and I'm sure there's absolutely zero bias in the report, mm-hmm. and they're looking at what both BP and Shell has said they're doing as far as low-carbon future renewable fuels and what they actually spend money on. And so the report came out basically saying that both BP and Shell aren't telling the truth and that a lot of their investments are not going toward renewables. Well, Greenpeace, if you pay attention, they tried. They really sincerely did, and it cost them money. They started losing profits. Both Shell and BP, neither one of them are tied to Greenpeace in any way. They're not there to make Greenpeace happy. So the numbers, BP last year spent 97% of its budgets went toward hydrocarbons recovery. Recovery, development and recovery Shell did 91%, which is about right Both of those companies are still spending More money on renewables that Chevron And Exxon um, Right. However, Greenpeace, I'm calling you out You're talking about how Both Shell and BP are not doing what it takes To move toward a renewable future And that the governments need to step in I'll give you a quote from Greenpeace Governments need to stop enabling fossil fuel companies Heavily regulate them or Plan our fossil fuel phase out now They were never changed on their own Greenpeace, I'm calling you out right now. What do you run your fleet on?
1: Mm -hmm. What runs
0: your ships? I'm calling you out right now. Why are you not using electrical powered ships in the ocean, right? Get rid of your sails, which are made of nylon. Get rid of every internal combustion engine that powers every one of your ships. Move it toward electric. Do it now. And by the way, I'd love to know how much money you spend on diesel. And Bunker C, which is one of the dirtiest fuels that's out there, and which is the actual fuel that Greenpeace uses to run their large ships out there. So this is so hypercritical for them calling out BP and Shell, who provide the fuels to their own ships so they can protest stuff. This is hypocrisy on top of hypocrisy.
1: Yep. Always the hypocrisy. Okie doke. BRICS expansion could reshape global energy markets.
0: Yeah. So if you don't know what BRICS is, it's an economic coalition composed of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS. That's where the acronym came from. This has been in the works for almost 20 years. If this group of companies would come together, this group of non-Western companies, they would have the economic powerhouse. Countries or companies? Countries. Yeah. countries. They would have the economic powerhouse to equal the United States. So here in the U.S., we have $4 trillion, that's with a T, $4 trillion worth of things that are bought and sold every single day. Yeah, And BRICS could actually come close to that, which then they could help regulate the world's economy. However almost every single one of the countries in BRICS don't like the other countries. And so trying to pull them together. Really? Yeah, Yeah. no, that makes sense. India doesn't get along with China. Neither India or China trust Russia. South Africa doesn't trust any of them. But the other thing that's a little worrisome here is OPEC's taking an interest in this. So some of these BRIC countries, like the African countries and the Indian countries, have a lot of reserves. Mm. So what would happen if BRICS actually comes together as an organization and then partners with OPEC? It would be horrible for the world. Now, all of a sudden, they really can control world's oil prices, no matter what the U.S. would do, or U.S. and Europe. So, what's going to happen with this? I don't think it's ever going to come together where they can all agree upon stuff and actually move the needle as a team like OPEC does. you got to remember, OPEC's made up of a bunch of companies and governments that are tribal. And so, them working together is something that's woven in their culture you have radically different cultures between, say, India and China, or, say, China and Russia, right? And so to try to pull all them together is going to be really hard. Plus, they all have different end goals and different their yeah are based agendas. on different things, right? Yeah. So is it really interesting to watch. If there's a threat to the petrodollar, to the U.S. currency, and its connection to hydrocarbons, it would be BRICS if they come together and if OPEC actually partners with them. However, with everything that's going on right now, I think China's starting to make more and more enemies with their advances into the South China Sea. Mm. India really really doesn't like that. Nobody's really trusting Russia right now. Well, uh, um, I wonder why. Brazil is still struggling a little bit with corruption. So this is something we need to keep an eye on. I don't think it's anything that we need to worry about in the next 5 or so years, but we absolutely need to, to pay attention to what's going on with
1: the Yeah, BRICS. I read somewhere that one unit of BRICS, is, you know, would be like an equivalent to like 55 USD
0: yes that would probably be up all right today's exchange rate yeah
1: yeah so okay offshore oil workers fall ill as heat sears usa gulf coast man it's been bad i can't even imagine being out in the field
0: yeah and so this is rare for the department bessie to basically say, hey, operators in the Gulf of Mexico, you need to watch the heat and the heat index for your workers. Not that it doesn't get hot in the Gulf of Mexico every year during the summer, but you have a constant breeze, and the humidity is actually lower. I know it sounds weird, but humidity is actually lower in the Gulf of Mexico than it is on land around the Gulf Coast. Oh, that
1: makes sense, yeah. Because
0: the wind actually slows down, and the moisture can accumulate on land. Yeah. right. That moisture is coming from the Gulf of Mexico. Right, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So the heat has been extreme here in Texas and Louisiana. It's been extreme for a month, maybe a little bit longer than that. The heat index routinely reaches well over 100 to 110 degrees. And so everybody's taking precautions. They're giving workers more breaks. There's actually physical protection. There's PPE for hot environments. So you have ice vests. That's cool.
1: Literally. Literally. <laughs> there <he> is, right? <laughs> so, so
0: we're handling it. The thing that I'm more worried about is what we're getting to a little bit later is with these really warm surface temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, That all that does is increase the fuel for what we don't want to have happen. Right. So, so anyway, Good thing that we're paying attention to our workers, make sure they're okay in all this heat.
1: Absolutely. UK charges former OPEC president with bribery. No. Never. <laughs> You're not going to tell me that the
0: president of OPEC, who's from Nigeria, would ever do anything <laughs> that's dishonest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's bad is he got busted. And in this part of the world, you have to be really kind of out there with your bribery to be noticed and to actually be charged for it and convicted. So, he's been accused, 63 years old, accepting bribes during his time as Nigeria's Minister of Petroleum Resources. He has a lawyer, so he's lawyered up. It's going to be interesting where this goes. So, in this part of the world, when politicians like this get charged with stuff – they call it a pizza party. And the reason they call it a pizza party is they get charged in public. They don't serve any jail time. Uh, the two lawyers be either sides make a deal, and then they go have pizza and beer together. So that's why it's called a pizza party. Interesting. Yeah. So I really hope that doesn't happen here. I My stomach
1: they, just growled. Sorry. <laughs> We're always hungry we record this <laughs> Well, show. we always do it in the afternoon.
0: Yeah. I'm hoping that if he's found guilty, he actually serves some time to send a message. It's that, doubtful. Yeah, but I would like to see the message sent that corruption is not something our industry will stand for. It's actually changing. It's changed years ago here in Europe. I'm starting to see it change in Africa, which I never thought I'd see that. It's changing in Brazil. Still a lot of bad problems within Central South America.
1: Yeah, I believe it. I believe it. Okay, next our ar- article is Sherian Hits Oil in the Gulf of Suez.
0: They're killing it. The only thing I don't like about the name of this operator is it's awfully close to Chevron. Even though it's spelled completely different, the name is pretty close.
1: It made me think of dog in French. Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So anyway, a great well, 165 feet of pay zone, which is a vertical cornucopia of reserves. Mm. They're already doing 23,000 barrel oil equivalent compared to 4,000 of their previous well. They're a percentage operatorness to spread the risk, which is always what happens. This Nubia discovery just confirms that there's a lot of hydrocarbons there. And this is when the operators are really tapping into it. They have the resources. They have the connections. They have the joint ventures. And the Gulf of Suez, I think, is, even though it's a pretty mature Reservoirs, I think it's just showing how with new technologies and new drilling techniques you can find new reservoirs even in depleted fields.
1: yeah, okay, so beach energy makes gas discovery in Australia.
0: I want to make a joke about that, but I'm not. So, this is in Australia's Perth Basin. That sounded
1: like it was going to be cheesy anyway, so. (laughs) 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 You're welcome, audience.
0: This is about 1,600 feet that they drilled, tapped in a huge gas reservoir. Once again, they have 161 vertical foot of pay dirt, which for gas is incredible. The well is already to the point where it's cased, and they're ready to actually go into completion and production. They're continuing to invest money in this area. Now, one of the things that's going on, is that you're starting to see a lot of pushback from the actual government of Australia, not on the operators producing natural gas and not on their impact to the environment, but on their hiring practices. It's going to be really interesting to see how it works out. So a lot of countries have local content requirements, and that content requirement sometimes pulls over to labor. So in a lot of places, including Australia, if you have a crew that's working on a rig, a certain percentage of them need to be native Australians, right? And in some cases, even aboriginal tribes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things that's happening is a lot of people don't want to work on these rigs in Australia, so these companies, and this is one of the ones, beaches have struggled with this right now, can't hire enough local people, so they're up meeting their local content requirements, so the government's threatening to shut them down. What a weird place to be. That's a very strange place. You have the place. reservoir, it's been proven, you can make money, everybody would profit from it. You're permanent, you're environmentally friendly, Yet, you don't have enough native Australians to work on your rig, so the project itself may get shut down. The government of Australia is going to have to really spend some time figuring out what they want to do here. That part of the world, a lot of manual labor is imported anyway from, like, Malaysia. So, I think the government of Australia may have to loosen their requirements around local content, at least for labor, because if this trend continues, you're going to have jobs that aren't going to be completed not because the finances don't make sense or not yeah. because there's not recoverable resources because you don't have enough local people to work there. Yeah. Interesting place to be because 20 years ago you would have had 3000 Australians applying
1: for these jobs. Yeah, that's quite strange. All right. Prairie reports 2.4 billion possible reserves in Colorado.
0: We know these people.
1: Yeah. I may have interviewed their CEO for a moment on camera with Governor Rick Perry. Yep.
0: We had a really good time. Other than of all times for us to go to Southern California, it was the one time in the last 79 years that a tropical depression decided to hit.
1: Well, Mark, anytime we go anywhere, a hurricane follows us. I think the last time that happened, we went to Tennessee after Harvey, and I can't remember what hurricane that was, but it came up and hit part of tennessee where the remnants
0: yeah hit it so bad luck yep which people that doesn't mean you shouldn't invite us to do something that's <laughs> your event we don't really always have a hurricane that follows us we've done a lot of events with no hurricanes yes. we just had several that had them anyway it doesn't get any better than this so their reserves are at least 285 million barrels or equivalent they're in Weld county colorado they have all the existing infrastructure you needed, all the roads, all the lease roads, all the takeoff from the pipelines, high quality reserves, easily recoverable. They just picked up an investment in these reserves. They have 412 qualified locations to actually drill in. They have hundreds of additional locations besides their initial five-year development program. The acreage is just amazing to actually work in. Then they not only do they have the Pipeline capacity for takeaways. The pipeline capacity is run in under capacity, so they can get it for very low cost. And the local electrical operating company, which I can't remember the name of the company, has a uh, electrical generation plant right smack in the middle yep. of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That's also very underutilized. So they're getting electricity for low cost and they're electrifying everything, which is good for the environment. So they're electrifying their drilling, their production, wire lines, completions. Oh, is West High Energy. That was the electrical supply company. So, you know, between Prairie partnering with the pipeline companies, with uh, picking up this acreage, partnering with the High West Energy. You're literally having an operating company that is going to operate in a very productive basin, no debt, with all the modern amenities you need to make as least impact to the environment as possible. Prairie's going somewhere. I'm not telling you this as investment advice. However – Prairie's going somewhere.
1: Yeah, they're going somewhere for sure. And I had a great time sitting with Ed Kovalec and his wife and just getting to know them. They're just really great people. Just everybody we met was wonderful. Everybody in the
0: company are really good people. Smart. Yes. All A-list people. But they're all their hearts from in the right place yeah. and they're trying to do the right thing. It's just It was a wonderful experience. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. All right. So Biden tightens offshore rig safety rules rolled back by Trump. <sighs> <laughs> So this is all tied back to when Obama
0: was president. We had the BP Macondo disaster and our federal government decided they knew how to operate deep water offshore better than oil and gas. Because, did. you know,
1: they all have petroleum engineering degrees. And they so. came up
0: quite frankly, with some crazy, crazy crap. And the API stepped in and said, hey, let us help you with this. And the API yeah. came up with recommended practice 75, which turned to a law. To make things safer so the BP Macondo disaster will never happen again, and it won't happen again. I know exactly what happened. I'm not going to share it with this show, but what happened was a list of one-off errors that just statistically can't happen again. And now we have new regulations in place, so it just won't. But some of the stuff that was pushed back upon was the federal government at that time wanted 24 by 7 live video monitoring of the wellhead, now that sounds pretty easy, especially if you're like in West Texas, right, in Midland, you can throw up a webcam right whatever. Try to do that at 5,000 feet of water. Not
1: only that, you, what if you have 100 wells?
0: Yeah. And so um, – At that depth. Yeah, right. And then who's going to pay for the bandwidth? Who's right. going to pay for the cameras, right? And then the other thing the federal government would do back then is want to have a kill switch. This is the one that really scared the crap out of me, in that this person watching the video feed, if they saw something that should be going on, it could hit a button and it would kill the well remotely. Number one, even people that work blowout preventers don't have a kill button that they hit immediately. Actually, they do have a kill button, but the blowout preventer itself decides when to take care of yeah. it has to happen so quickly the second thing on top side if they end up going to kill a well there's a process yeah the, you, you just, just can't go boop. because if those Rams shear which is last line of defense mm-hmm. you now cut the drill stem and you have no connection to that well and hopefully it's capped but to go back to it, it's not like you are going back and screw your water hose to the side of your house you gonna have to redo everything because you sheared drill stem so anyway they're so dense What's happening now is our current administration is trying to roll back some of this, saying that it's needed, it's not needed.
1: What has occurred that they need to roll back all of a sudden, besides a vote
0: right now? That's exactly what's happening. So all this does, this is a political move. It doesn't help the industry. Actually, it hurts the industry. It makes things less safe. It adds a layer of cost. And it's not needed. And so this is ridiculous. And it's 100%, you're right, Paige, politically motivated. We know what we're doing as an industry. right. Let us do what we're good at. Please quit putting politics in our industry. We're overloaded with it now already. And to have something like this while we're heading to election season where it's obvious that this is done for votes is just wrong.
1: Yep. Okay. Energy impacts of Gulf of Mexico hurricanes quantified.
0: Yeah, so this is interesting. We go through this drill every year where a lot of experts, not me, I do a lot of predictions, but I never predict hurricanes. It's a different level of science that I am not not well versed with. They always estimate on what would happen this hurricane season, how many storms, how bad they're going to be and how it would affect production in the Gulf of Mexico. This year, they're thinking about at one point in the Gulf of Mexico, we're going to have about 40% of production shut in and take seven days to recover because they expect to have a high impact case of hurricanes, right? And so whether that's one big hurricane catching a lot of production sites or several small hurricanes if we have a direct hit with a very large hurricane on our infrastructure i'm not so much worried about production the offshore production facilities are designed to survive anything hurricane can throw at it we'll offload the personnel to make sure they're safe the thing i'm really worried about Paige, is refineries and yeah. the only reason i'm worried about that is i lived with that with katrina where a lot of the you know i think it's close to 90 percent of all the refining capacity in the us is in the gulf coast and if you have a big enough storm and it hits in the right place, you could take out a lot of those refineries that the rest of the U.S. and a lot of the world depends on.
1: And we're on. already down one yeah. refinery yeah.
0: in Louisiana because yeah. of a fire. So. so we'll keep an eye on this. We're heading into sort of the peak or the beginning of the peak of hurricane season. The Gulf of Mexico waters are extremely warm, which is just Yeah, I mean, we've got one in
1: there right now. Idalia is hitting Florida. It's yeah. a Category 4 right now. Or no, that's Franklin. No, it's just a tropical storm. So it's just the beginning of everything.
0: And... Our strategic petroleum reserves are at all-time look.
1: Yep. uh, Don't remind me.
0: The strategic petroleum reserves are there for things like this in case something happened to our refineries. Yep. In case of our production that the United States could keep running as a country. And right now, I think we have 13 days. That's Right. And
1: I think the last time you and I had the discussion, it was eleven.
0: Eleven days. All right, this research you're doing right here are saying that we should have seven days to recover. <laughs> so if we have eleven days of reserves, and they're saying it could take seven. You're literally looking at our backup down to three days. Freaking this is ridiculous. insanity. I don't care politically what side you're on. St- fill up the strategic petroleum reserve so we have the redundancy and the security for all the people and you know all the
1: companies that are here in the U.S. Keep your tank filled, people. Keep your tank filled. I already did that. I was like, ooh, hurricane better fill up. Okay. So, API condemns new recommended restrictions on offshore energy production.
0: This is what I was talking about earlier. API, like I said, came up with recommended practice 75, which was put into law Mm -hmm. after the BP Macondo disaster. With our current administration wanting to roll back some of that API stepping up and saying this is literally ridiculous. And they talk about a whole bunch of different things. One of the things that they added that wasn't in the original proposal from the Obama administration is they want to adopt no marine traffic at nighttime. I'm trying not to laugh. I'm guessing that our federal authorities think that these workboats and these tankers that are in the Gulf of Mexico, I guess they think the captains of those ships only drive by sight. And if they can't see at night, they shouldn't be driving around. Mm -hmm. Hey, there's this thing that was invented like – 90 years ago, called radar. (laughs) You know, the same thing that you allow your pilot in your commercial plane you're flying to fly around the world and land your plane safely. Well, believe it or not, offshore vessels also have radar, <laughs> and they're trained on how to use it. They also have things like FLIR, so you know, nighttime vision. They also have an entire communications grid, making sure they talk to others, just like the FAA does, to make sure all the planes don't crash in each other. So, federal government, before you start thinking that our production vessels should not operate at night because we don't know how to operate, maybe <laughs> you learn a little bit about what we up, actually man. do. Yeah, you Oh, you, you they're really, so dumb. You, you, you really can't. So once again, I'm just happy we're heading to an election season, which is gonna be interesting.
1: Oh, it's gonna be something. Definitely something. All right. TC Energy shares sink on plants to spin off oil pipeline I'm business. I'm not even gonna read the
0: article. If you listen to the show, you know that I told that I said that this was a mistake by TC Energy wanting to get rid of their liquid pipelines. Well, TC Energy, not only did I think that, looks like you're shareholders. <laughs> So, you've taint, <laughs> you've tanked your shares by making a bad business decision. Let's see what happens with this. They're not going to reverse what they're doing. Once again, I think it's a bad decision. TC is dumping their basic liquid business. I so think of crude oil pipelines, I believe, because they think of negative public perception. Or maybe they even truly believe that the crude oil business is going to disappear somewhere in the future, which it won't. I think this is a horrible decision by TC Energy. And their shareholders seem to agree with me. So, you know, good luck, TC Energy.
1: Okay, last one. Railroad Commission of Texas. Biden's plan for offshore wind farms in GOM threatens energy security.
0: So this is our buddy Wayne Christian with the Texas Railroad Commissioner sent a letter to our governor, Greg Abbott, and Land Commissioner Don Buckingham voicing his opposition to installation offshore wind farms in the Gulf of Mexico after our current administration announced plans to offshore more than 300,000 acres of offshore wind energy. I disagree. I think it's a great idea to have offshore wind, if it makes financial sense. I love the idea of our offshore drilling production platforms running on electricity that generated by wind energy right next door, instead of having generator sets and having to haul diesel and all the environmental risk that takes. However, I did some deep dive actually yesterday into these leases for offshore wind energy. Guess what, Paige? Hmm. If you set up a wind farm, In the Gulf of Mexico, according to the way they want to auction this off, you pay for the lease and that's it. What else do you... Wait, let me tell you what's different. If I take that same block in the Gulf of Mexico and drill for oil, I pay for the lease and a percentage of my profits go back to the federal and state government. Wow. See the difference? Yeah. So number one, that is absolutely not making it fair.
1: No, not at all.
0: Number two if you really want renewables to have their rightful place in our energy mix, you have to at some point quit subsidizing them. Yep. They have to stand on their own two feet. And if you look at all the states in the U.S., there's one state where renewables stand on their own two feet in a fair market, and it's this state right yep. here, Texas. Why? Because we made it fair. It's like, okay, you can build wind and solar, but you have to compete with the same rates of natural gas and nuclear and everything else. So I don't like the fact that our current administration has basically weighed the scale in favor. I'm all for offshore wind energy. I really am. I would love to see these blocks get awarded. I'd love to see companies come in and build offshore wind facilities, storage facilities, even bringing that electricity back to shore where it makes the sense. So I disagree with wanting to block this. I disagree with our railroad commissioners, Wayne Christian, on his view on this. However, if we're going to do it, can we start the process where it's a level playing field so it's fair for everybody? Because what I'm worried about, and you're starting to see this happen right now here in the US, some of these wind and solar projects that are up and operating are now at the point where they start start needing to do maintenance and repair and there's no money. And so they're going to end up, Closing these installations down that cost taxpayers millions and millions of dollars, and certain parts of wind and solar installations you cannot recycle; they do not decompose. Right? Well, that's a pretty damn big problem when it's on land. What happens when you have an abandoned wind farm two hundred miles off the coast of? That's a great question.
1: Yeah, because whenever we decommission platforms, like there's an entire process, and you know, a lot of companies like to you know give to rigs to reefs, so like something comes of it, right? And then they. Trawl and clean up all their mess, you know, all their reclamation. So, wow, I don't – What Nobody regulation? knows. No one no. has an answer to that. Interesting. Like I said, I absolutely love
0: the idea of having offshore wind for a bunch of reasons. One is it doesn't bother people on shore. So, all the people that are anti-wind can't say anything because it's not even close. It's a resource that is sitting there blowing consistency, right? And there's a need for electricity offshore, especially in offshore production platforms. And I would just love it to come from wind instead of gensets. However, do it right the first time. Yeah. Don't start off – Tipping the scales because what's going to happen is at some point that market is going to correct itself, and if that's when they have to do maintenance or repair or decommission it, somebody. What are those to even
1: set on?
0: So the process is very similar to building a production platform. They okay. do all the engineering. They yeah. figure out you know what's the weight load, what's the shear, what's the uplift. They yeah. build the platform to hold up the wind farm. A lot of places, if it's shallow enough, they're anchored to the floor, so they're peered, right? Okay. Just like you do anything else. Uh-huh. In some places, they're floating. So they build a spar, and they just do the math so the spar is able to maintain, keep the spar upright with the resistance from the wind that's generated by the God, actual that's a lot wind. of math. It is, but you know what? Engineers are engineers. They can yeah. figure out anything. And a lot of the work and a lot of the engineering and the procurement building an offshore wind form is close to building an offshore production platform, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense So the sense same to me. companies like Technic FMC, Schilling Robotics, all, they all get work out of it, whether it's a production platform or wind platform. They don't care. It's still build an offshore platform. Makes sense. Yeah. So like I said, love the idea of offshore wind, but do it right the first time. Don't start off doing it with tipping the scales one way or the other. Yeah. This is the point where I used to say advertise with us, but I'm not. We're doing good. Weekly recount.
1: All right. We are down ten in the United States at six thirty-two, up one in Canada at one ninety, and down six internationally at nine sixty-one.
0: Yeah, I got this thing in my head that it's not fully baked yet, but the recount should be going up. You're starting to see supply outstrip demand. You're starting to see the price go up. And this may be the first time in history where we don't respond to that as an industry like we normally do by oversupplying and then tanking the prices. So probably will be my own predictions. I'll probably get this fully baked. but There's something going on. The recount should not be going down. It should be going up. But yeah. The reason it's going down, I'm pretty convinced, is high interest rates. Long story, not for this show. What is for this show, if you want to pay attention to what's going on, and we got a lot of cool changes, just go join our LinkedIn page. You Go follow our LinkedIn page. Best way to catch up with everything. And then if you want to submit a question for First Friday Q&A, you can either do it on the website, Oil & Gas This Week, oggn.com. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I, but the goal is to help educate our audiences. And then the monthly oil gas events newsletter, sign up now. It's getting ready to change. In fact, the week after you hear this, it will have changed. New format, much easier reads, been updated. It'll also come from OGG instead of modal Point. So if you're an existing subscriber from modal Point, you'll see a new newsletter come from OGGN but it's just a revamped version of the old events one.
1: And some plus, really cool stuff.
0: Plus, some really cool. We have a second newsletter you're gonna get called The Sunday Update, which is unlike any other newsletter in the industry. It's going to be cool. It's going to be fun. It's going to be very valuable. And you'll get that also for free if you sign up for the events newsletter. Then if you want myself or any of our experts to come speak at your event, just holler. and We'll share the details with you. Ready to get out of here? Yes. Remember, folks, do great work. Pay it forward. And we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.